Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for Friday, October 23rd, 2020. On today's episode, we're going to discuss what we've been up to at the water cooler. This is Slash Film Editor-in-Chief Peter Serretta, and joining me on today's podcast is Slash Film Managing Editor Jacob Hall. Hello, hello. Weekend Editor Brad Oman. Hey, that's me. Senior Writer Ben Pearson. Hey, what's going on? And Writers Y Tran Bowie. Hey, everyone. And Chris Evangelista. Hi. So I hope everybody uh, enjoyed the episode with Stephen Tobolowski that went out on Wednesday. We'll be back to normal on Monday with a new news episode. But uh, it was just a, a, they they asked uh, they they're doing a new season of the Tobolowski files, and they were like, you know, could we do like a special episode? I was like, why don't you have Stephen talk about like how you know this whole pandemic is affecting his job as an actor and writer. Um, and I found it fascinating. So uh, if you haven't checked that out, uh, go listen to it. Uh, Stephen Tobolowski is like one of the best character actors working today, I would say. So, um, okay, let's let's get into it. What what have we been up to um, this past week? I, you know, every Halloween, I like to get into it. I like to go to all the haunts, like the Halloween Horror Nights, the Not Scary Farms. All those kind of events and all those events have been canceled this year because of the global situation. And uh, in, in their place, at least in my area, is like these drive through haunts where you stay in your car and you drive through like an outdoor haunted house. I have not done many of these. I've heard bad things like there's um the Hollywood, uh, the um. Yeah, the Hollywood Hayride is is one that we usually do every year, and they they transformed into a, a drive through haunt. And I've heard such horrible things about that. Uh, we we got tickets to this thing called the Urban Legends Haunt, and they're doing this at the OC Fairgrounds, the Orange County Fairgrounds. Uh, I had uh, you know some high expectations for this, uh, and what it is is like you're in your car this is actually kind of different than what I've seen online. Like I, I watch a lot of YouTubers that have been doing this sort of thing in like Florida and other parts of 
the United States. And usually when I see it, it's like one lane of a car going through, you know, there's themed environments on the left and right. And there's people that like jump out, but not enough to like make you swerve your car or anything like that. Um, this is this event was not like that. I thought it was going to be like that. But what it was, was like, I want to say like eight or ten lanes of cars. So it's almost like a a strip of like a, a big highway and you are all sent into th- this thing, which is surrounded by these like shipping containers so that you can't see in inside it uh, at the same time. And then you drive up to the front of that scene where like there's someone telling you to stop and then like a scene plays out around you. And, uh, you know, there was a scene with the carnival. There was a scene with, uh, I don't know why my Siri is going off right now. I'm sorry about the guys. I, I think she thought the scene was Siri. But um, there's a scene with a carnival. There's a scene uh, with, with like a da- dance club. Like the last scene of the whole thing was just like a bunch of dancers dancing and there was no scares. Uh, I think the, I don't know. This, this whole thing was very disappointing. It was a waste of money. It was a waste of time. We, we had fun with friends. So in, in the end, win-win, but it like, there wasn't many scare actors. So at times it felt like we were just sitting there for 10 minutes, like in traffic waiting for something to happen. And we would like see, you know, someone four cars away get scared by someone, but like, you know, we'd just be sitting there like, Oh, I wish I got that scare. Like, I don't know. It was just really, it was really disappointing and really sad and also really, really expensive. I don't remember how much the event cost, but like over a hundred dollars per car. And I think we had like the VIP experience, which did not feel like anything VIP at all. Um, so it, <laughs> I think this event sold out. So I don't know who this helps, but uh, because I can't tell you, like, don't buy tickets to the Urban Legend Haunt in the OC Fairgrounds. But uh, if you're going, maybe adjust your expectations a bit because it, it was um, it was not good. And also to get in there, it took us like 30 minutes to get in. Like, like it was, so you're waiting and not only are you waiting during this event, like during like these scenes and the music playing and whatever, but you're waiting 30 minutes to get in there. I don't know. Just, uh, you know, go, go, go have a dinner with friends outdoors, socially distanced. I think you'll probably have a better time. So, uh, HT, what have you been up to? So my roommate moved out just this past weekend and I have, uh, been spending my time replacing the furniture that she took with her. (laughs) Um, and I did find and buy that, pink velvet armchair that I was looking for. So I'm very happy about that. <laughs> the one splurge I have amidst a bunch of other cardboard boxes that I am drowning in and uh, no TV stand. So it's been really fun having a, a TV on top of a cardboard box. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, I'm living like I'm out of college again. It's really fun. My new roommate doesn't come, um, doesn't arrive until um, for another two weeks. So it's me by myself for a little bit. I'm kind of testing out how to live on my own. And it's, um, it's you know, it's, it's not bad except for all the cardboard boxes everywhere and uh, lack of various items. But it's it's been fun shopping for new furniture, even if it's a little expensive. But um, I'm actually having quite a bit of uh, 
it's a nice distraction watching a lot of decor videos and having ideas for the kind of aesthetic I want. See, I have the problem of like, there's stuff I want, but I, I'm very bad at like seeing if it goes together. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Like, like this is cool and this is cool. Let's put it in a room together. It's like, oh, no, those don't yeah. work together. That's why I've been watching so many decor videos. And also I've been calling my mom, asking her how I should try to uh, format, like sh- furnish my 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 uh, apartment. And she keeps telling me to do things a certain way. And I'm like, I don't know. I can't imagine it. And then she yells at me for being so indecisive. <laughs> so it, it's, it's been fun just kind of figuring that out. And um my, my roommate will be bringing furniture too, but it's mostly just kind of me uh, in the meanwhile, just you know, uh, buying new art and <laughs> looking for, for places to put things. So it's actually, it's, it's kind of fun. Are, are you buying things like in like a more practical sense of like the layout or do you like, do you care at all about like feng shui or anything like that? I do care about feng shui. I'm a little bit superstitious about it actually. So like, for example, uh, one thing that I'm, superstitious about is the mirror hanging like where you should hang mirrors so you're not supposed to have a mirror hanging um in front of your front door like facing the front door or else the energies of the house will escape by like reflecting <laughs> through the mirror through the door you're not allowed you're not supposed to have one in your bedroom facing your your bed or else the um it will have too much um sort of uh energy there that will give you restless sleep so i'm trying to figure out where to hang mirrors right now <laughs> tell that to all the rock stars that have mirrors on top of their ceiling on, uh, facing their bed yeah well i will <laughs> uh where did you find a pink armchair i found it on overstock yes overstock.com okay online mm-hmm. we need to see a photo of you like you know like in your like your uh what do you call that like the chair like the the throne in your throne yeah i will i'll take a picture of my newly designed space after everything is up as it should be and not on top of cardboard boxes okay let's move on to what we've been reading jacob and ben you've both uh i guess you haven't been reading you've been listening to the same podcast yeah i'm the strong proponent of podcasts going in this section because i'm a jerk and i don't like playing them in the gaming section <laughs> so i want to talk about <laughs> wind of change right here because as soon as i finished it the one of the first thing i did was dm ben and say ben you'd listen to this i think you would really like it uh this podcast is an eight episode podcast it launched in may and it, it launched when i was on my social media breaks i don't know if it was a big hit or broke out people talked about it i, I don't know uh, but i know it's great <laughs> i really loved it it's uh from uh, New Yorker journalist Patrick uh, Radden Keefe, he tells a story about how a friend of his who specializes in headhunting former uh, spies and CIA agents to give them jobs post-retirement from spying, someone who he knows is a spy for the CIA, heard from somebody else in the CIA that the Scorpions song, Wind of Change, an anthem to the end of the Cold War and the downfall of the Berlin Wall, he heard that it was written by the CIA as a form of covert propaganda uh, to help, you know, battle the Soviet Union on a cultural level. And this seems like a crazy story that this, you know, metal ballad from this, you know, hair band was written by the CIA. But the first few episodes established very quickly that the CIA has a long, long, detailed history of cultural warfare against the Soviet Union. And it becomes very quickly plausible. And the rest of the series is him trying to get to the bottom of this and figure out did the CIA write the song Wind of Change, which you've probably heard it before. It's not 
it was it was massive in Europe and Russia, like like a cultural seismic moment. And if it was written by CIA, then it was one of the most effective, you know, works of espionage in world history. And I found this fascinating and chilling and funny. And the number of conclusions he comes to and does not come to are equally compelling. And it's like a mixture of rock music history and uh, the history of, of espionage and the Cold War and the CIA. There are episodes dedicated to the music industry, but also to how spy work happened and, you know, the, the cultural side of the Cold War about how one of the keys to understanding how the CIA fought the Soviet Union was Dr. Zhivago, the novel, which is a thing I'll, I'll say for you to learn for yourself. And I think the, the conclusion is really sad and funny and really, really stuck with me. Ben, was I right in thinking you would love this as much as I did? Oh my God, Jacob, uh, I have not. Um, I mean, you wrote in our document here that we devoured this podcast. I feel like I haven't devoured any piece of media in, in this manner in a long, long time. So you sent me this message saying, I think you would really like this podcast. And I had actually heard an ad for it probably around the time that it uh, initially premiered, but I was like driving in my car and listening to a podcast. So I couldn't subscribe in the moment because it sounded like an interesting concept. And then I just completely forgot about it until you sent me this uh, this message and like, oh my God, this is so right up my alley. Like I actually unironically love a lot of the hair metal from this era. I just like grew up listening to that music and really like actually enjoy a lot of it. So I was familiar with the Scorpions. Um, you know, they, for people who don't know, they, I guess one of their more probably uh, famous songs in the United States would be Rocky Like a Hurricane, which I'm sure people have, have heard. Uh, Winds of Change, uh, it feels like a little bit more of a deep cut for people who you know, don't love hair metal, but, um, man, I, I, this whole, uh, podcast series, the way it's structured, the way it feels, the vibe of the whole thing, the interviews that he gets, it feels like a TV show. It feels cinematic. It feels like, um, you know, like, like a, a like a true crime kind of story where, you know, it has this interesting hook and then, uh, you know, you keep peeling back the layers and there's more and more there. And, um, I loved how it it sort of uh, encompassed a little bit more than just this one narrative of trying to answer this question about whether the song was written by the CIA. It sort of, as you mentioned, brings in a little bit of rock history. It brings in a lot of stuff that I just, you know, either learned about in, you know, one paragraph in a history book in, in high school and completely forgot about stuff about, uh, you know, Noriega and like the, the drug cartels and um, how that all connected to sort of shady people in the music industry at this time and and how, you know, there's like interviews with uh, with secret agents and spies and stuff, people who have been in and out of the game for a while. And it is like so addicting and fascinating. And I loved every second of it. So um, yeah, I just wanted to give a, a very, very high recommendation for the podcast is called Wind of Change. And actually, Jacob, I don't know if you listened to the bonus episodes or not, but there are two bonus episodes that came out after the, um, I guess the, like the, the narrative proper is finished after eight episodes. And then there are two bonus episodes that are only available on Spotify. And both of those are really good too. It's just like um, stuff that couldn't fit in to the, the main narrative, but those are, are really fascinating sort of in their own right. Um, and just speaks to the, the level of people that um, Keith and, and his partner were able to uh, interview and talk to and, and get these crazy stories out of. So um, I would say don't skip those bonus episodes because those are, are really fascinating as well. But um, God, what a great podcast. Wind of Change. Check it out. How refreshing is it to find an investigative podcast where it's a limited series podcast where the goal is to solve a mystery that's not about a murder. It's 
It feels yeah. really refreshing. <laughs> yeah, it really was. And it's so like, I just love the, the um, sort of on its face, it feels like there's no way this story is true, right? And then as you mentioned, like over the first couple episodes, they sort of like lay the, the groundwork for like, well, it's not quite as crazy as it sounds. And it's just so um, endlessly fascinating to me. So yeah, yeah I, I really love this. And thank you so much for recommending it. <laughs> yeah, I, I feel like once you hear Dr. Zhivago and the Nina Simone stories, you realize, oh, holy crap, this could happen. It may have happened. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah, Wind of well, Change, really, really highly recommended. Yeah. In addition to this podcast, Ben, you've been reading some stuff? Yeah, I read, uh, it's called Anything You Can Imagine, Peter Jackson and the Making of Middle Earth. And I think Chris talked about this probably when the book came out in 2018. And uh, I bought, I think I actually bought this as a gift for my wife, if I'm, if memory serves correct, because she loves um, Tolkien and, and the whole Middle Earth stuff. I'm a big Lord of the Rings fan, but I have not, like, she's read The Cimmerillion, for example, and I haven't, I haven't gone that deep quite yet. Um, but uh yeah, this book, it tracks the making of the Lord of the Rings films. And then at the very end of it, it sort of touches on the Hobbit trilogy as well. Uh, I found the information in this book to be really worthwhile as a, you know, a fan of those movies. Um, and I, I loved hearing all of the behind the scenes stories about, the, you know, how everything came to be. Um, all the, the stuff, it, it sort of felt like there was enough there that... Um, that was new that wasn't covered in the extensive DVD bonus features and, and Blu-ray bonus features that I, I felt like it, it was worth my time to read. I, that being said, I really did not like the writing style. And I know the author, uh, Ian Nathan is British or from the UK anyway. And, um, I wonder how much of it is just like a different writing style than I'm used to reading from American writers, because it's just like the sentence structure and like basic stuff that like, you know, when we're writing at Slash Film, occasionally I'll edit articles. So I just have like a little bit of an editor's brain and so much of the way that the book is is physically put together, like the prose of the sentences. I'm just like, I, I uh, had to like sort of shake my head and like do double takes a bunch of times in the beginning of the book and then just sort of ease into this writing style, which is not at all like, you know, what I would call an ideal writing style, but maybe it's just a, a cultural uh, chasm there. But um, you know, beyond that, if you can sort of get over that hump, I think there's a, a lot here that uh, is definitely worth checking out, if, especially if you're a fan of these um, of, of these incredible movies. Um, I, I feel like uh, the one, I guess, other downside to the book is because he clearly has a relationship with Peter Jackson. He's, he's gotten so much, uh, the writer has gotten so much access over the years and done tons of interviews with really everybody that you could want to be interviewed for this, for a book like this. Um, th that means that he's spoken with Jackson, you know, on and off for, you know, 20 years or whatever, like pretty much. And so he, the author tries to defend the Hobbit sequels in a way that I found really, oh, yeah. um, you know, like almost embarrassing, <laughs> like, okay, the, you know, the, I see why you would want to say this because you're obviously friends with the guy, but it would be nice if there was a little bit more of an objective <laughs> viewpoint there at the end, or at least the, the appearance of one. Um, but uh, yeah, again, the, the Hobbit stuff is so, is such a small, um, you know, it's basically like one or two chapters at the very, very end of the book. So it's not that big of a deal. And the, uh, the majority of the the book is like these incredible stories and really a detailed beat by beat of the making of uh, that first trilogy, which is, um, 
you know, unassailable. So, uh, yeah, it's called Anything You Can Imagine, Peter Jackson and the Making of Middle Earth, if you want to dive into that world. Okay, cool. Let's, uh, let's move on to what we've been watching. And before we get into some new movies, let's start off with an old movie, or a recently old movie. Uh, Jacob, what have you been watching? Yeah, to prepare for the new one, I watched Borat for the first time in a few years, and I vividly recall the first Borat being among the greatest theatrical experiences in my life, a sold-out Friday night crowd with the first Borat, uh, with people who did not know what to expect yet, was a sort of a miraculous experience of people, like, laughing, but also, like, the, the sort of whispering afterward of, did that just happen? Did I just see that? Did I just hear that? And I feel like... Borat was a victim of its own popularity in that Sacha Baron Cohen's uh, satire became co-opted by people who took the character at face value and started just quoting his catchphrases instead of engaging with his intent. So time has been interesting to the first Borat. It's very much a product of its time, very much a product of a very specific era of American politics, which makes it so fascinating to go back and watch again and I'm remind. I'm going to go off on a dumb tangent here, and I'm very, very sorry. Uh, but I, I, I studied a lot of satire in high school and college. I took uh, certain uh, classes focusing focusing on it. And there's a school of comedy called a Juvenalian satire, uh, which is uh, literally named after Juvenal, a a playwright from ancient uh, Rome, who his form of satire, which is also a product of this region, uh, was. Uh, vicious, savage, full of, you know, uh, no-holds-barred takedowns of institutions and people in ways that were deeply upsetting and didn't hold back. And you see this sort of satire and comedy evolve over the centuries. I I think Jonathan Swift, who I also read quite a bit of uh, back in school, is the next person to pick up that baton. I mean, if you, like, it's astonishing to me that the Texas school system had <laughs> Culver's Travels and a mod proposal on our reading list because I think because they're old and influential, they said, oh yeah, these are fine. When those are um, extremely specific cultural works that are comedies about the time in a very specific, powerful, biting way that are also full of deeply offensive comedy. Like a mod proposal is a fake document written that uh, the Irish poor should sell their children to rich people to be, to, to, to be eaten. Because it'll, it'll deal with the population problem of Ireland, which is, you know, an insane piece of satire. And it's very particular in, uh, to its time. It requires you to actually engage with the history of when it was made and why it was written in order to fully appreciate it. Same with uh, same with his other work. Like, I can't believe in high school I'd, I'd read a book where, uh, where Gulliver, on his many journeys, uh, is at one point used as a sex toy in a, in a, giant, in a, in a giant woman. That's the kind of thing that people forget about when Gulliver's Travels is made in the Jack Black comedies. But all of this <laughs> to say, I think that juvenile and satire is always often is a product of a very, very specific time, very specific place, a very specific purpose uh, from an artist who uh, is doing a no holds barred, vicious takedown on something that he finds despicable. And Sasha Baron Cohen is doing that. Whether you find his scatological approach, you know, funny for you or effective for you, there's no denying that he is continuing such a long tradition of art that is specific to its time, to its place, to its intent. And if Jonathan Swift can blend, you know, shit jokes with high-minded satire, so can Sasha Baron Cohen. I think that time will be kind to the Borat films. Not in that I think they'll always be funny. I think maybe in 20, 20, 30 years, people won't find Borat funny at all. 
but I do think that there will be classes taught about Borat in the same way that we read Jonathan Swift uh, today. So yeah, Borat's good. I like Borat. That's it. <laughs> okay, and you saw the the sequel, Borat, the subsequent movie film. Yeah. I think this is movie, uh, it sent me into a spiral of, of despair. I found it very, very funny. I was laughing a great deal throughout all of it. Uh, but it's so dark and it's such a unflattering portrait of the world we live in, in Trump's America, that I, it, it was upsetting in a way that I think only distance will make it more palatable for me. But it's still so funny. It's so dark. It was seen in a synagogue that made me want to crawl out of my skin and hide under my couch. <laughs> and I don't think it's as funny as the first Borat, at least because it has more... It, it, it wears its intent more clearly on its sleeve, which means that it's comedy while more biting and urgent. I mean, the movie literally ends with a message asking you to vote. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's, it's activist filmmaking. It's activist comedy, activist satire, and it's bra- brave and brazen and bold. I just wish that it was a bit funnier. I think, I, I think there's maybe the gags are a bit more, too familiar compared to the first film. Uh, and also, I guess there are two types of Borat comedy scenes. There are the scenes where this racist idiot uh, encourages people to come out of their own shells and be racist and, and sexist alongside him. Where the you know, point of the satire is, look at these people revealing their true selves on camera. But there also are scenes in both films where the comedy comes from someone being the unwitting, you know, straight man to his get to his gags, where people are unwaveringly polite to Borat uh, because that's if you're if you're, if you're an American, that's oftentimes the way you're raised and trained to exist in society, which is. You know, just nod your head and try to get through an awkward situation as best you can and try to negotiate it and not be rude. And I personally find those those latter scenes to be funnier. I think the scenes where people are desperately trying to be kind to Borat, even though he's giving every single reason not to, are funnier <laughs> than the ones where he's exposing racists. But the ones where he exposed racists are more powerful and timely and make up a lot more of the time in, the, in this new film. So yeah, I like it. But I also think that it's... I need some distance from it. I need to fully appreciate it. That's me. Yeah. How about you guys? I uh, I watched this last night. Um, I was laughing out loud. Uh, this is a movie I would recommend, but that said, I and I haven't seen Borat since when it first came out in the theater. And I, I remember that being hilarious. I remember not, not only hilarious, but like, I don't know. I don't think this quite hits the mark of the first Borat's. Uh, maybe it is for me, it feels like a lot of these scenes are, are a lot more convoluted to fit into this narrative. If that makes sense. Like they seem very, very specific. Whereas in the first one, and I could be wrong here because it's been how many years over 10 years. Um, like, but it, it, it felt like there was a lot more room to just like play in, in this one. Like, it's like every scene is accomplishing an objective that it feels like, Sasha Baron Cohen wrote the scene and he knew how he wanted the scene to play out, you know, with the real people, even to the point of like, there's some weirdness. I don't know. Maybe this is me like coming into this, like thinking about like, how do you film this and stuff like that? But there's like points where like, he's interacting with a real person in a baker bakery. And then like, he's like, Oh, can I get a cupcake? And then there's like a cupcake that's in there. That's like obviously planted for him to buy that like furthers the story that was definitely not something that was on sale there. Right. Like, I don't know. It just like, it, it makes me like, I, I'm, I'm taken out of the story uh, because I'm like wondering like what, you know, I guess wondering about the production 
and also even in the best moments, like the climactic moment, which we won't spoil here, but is all over the news, which I think is handled fantastically where it's like intercut between things. Like they really made like the most talk, like the, the one that people are going to be talking about, be the climactic moment of this film. Uh, but at the same time, I'm like, I'm left wondering, like, how did they accomplish this? I want to see the behind the scenes. Like, you, you know, there's the part in the trailer. I, so, so this is probably a way of saying it without spoiling anything. There's a part in the trailer where he's dressed as Donald Trump and he is at uh, a Pence rally. Is that right? It's it's CPAC. A CPAC. Um, but P- Pence is talking and he's like basically like escorted out. Like, I want to see like what happened, how he talked his way out of it. Like, you know, what happens after the camera, like cut or the, you know, the editor cut the film. And I know we saw some of that online today. Like there's some like body cam footage of like some policemen that uh, pulled Borat over. And we, you get to see like how things play out in a scene that, uh, that doesn't play out on film. So uh, I don't know. So I, I guess I'm just like, more enamored by like the idea of like how does he accomplish this stuff like how like i i almost wish it was <laughs> this is sad but i almost wish it was like a prank tv show where we're like seeing the the filmmaking side of it of how like they set up the whole thing and what you know not only the scene but like what you know, what happens when the things don't go as as expected and like how they're scrambling behind the scenes and like how he like I almost want to see that. And that to me, I think means that the narrative doesn't completely work, but uh, Brad, what did you think? Um, I, I disagree with you there. I, I actually think that the narrative works really well. And I think that it's a largely due because they did such a great job of stitching together a narrative with all these gags. And I think that Sasha Baron Cohen knows like the general arc of like his character and what he wanted to do, especially with his daughter's character. And he, he knows how to steer those situations to get people to say or do things that, help lean into that. But I also think that they're able to figure out how to use that footage to their advantage and then use like the scenes that they construct themselves without real people to help them fit into the overall narrative. And like, honestly, I don't think the cupcake scene is the one where I, I I found myself wondering how they pull that off because like I've seen cupcakes like that in real bakery shops. They're used for like baby showers and stuff like that. So the idea of that cupcake being there with the baby, I imagine it's, probably something that was thought of by somebody who saw the cupcakes and thought, oh, this would be a hilarious scene if someone could, you know, even if it was even a sketch rather than talking to a real person, like that's a funny scenario, the way, the way it plays out. But I, the one scene to me that made me wonder, want to know more about how they pull that kind of thing off and how, wh- whether or not they try to guide scenes beforehand or like if they speak to certain subjects and they know how things are going to play out, um, is I don't I I don't want this isn't necessarily a spoiler per se but like but there's a scene that takes place in a synagogue where Borat acts acts very despicably and does so, like um, is dressed as a very stereotypical propaganda um, like uh, Jewish person but the the woman that he meets uh, embraces him in such a kind completely like sweet way and like there's no not a not a like mean bone in in her heart whatsoever. And that serves as like a part of Borat's big character arc. But I wonder like doing what he did, how do you know that that's the reaction that you're going to get from a person like that? Like what kind of preparation goes into that? Because obviously they knew that those people were going to be there. I'm sure that the two people knew they were going to be on camera. And I just wonder like how those kinds of scenarios 
like 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 you said, you know, play out how to, what happens when they don't work, when they don't get what they want. Um, and I I, w- I wish that there was some way for them to like um, document, you know, like a, the making of a movie like this. But at the same time, then it gives up kind of the tricks that you, they can use to you know create similar hidden camera situations for various shows and other movies of of this ilk, you know. So, um, but I I really like this movie a lot, and I think that it's. Um, I agree that it's not quite as funny as the first movie, mostly because I don't think that the last come quite as fast and furiously, but also because we know the shtick. And at this point, a lot of this stuff isn't nearly as shocking as it was, you know, 15 years ago, because a lot of that racism, you know, was, was hidden and needed to be pulled out by people when they felt comfortable in like showing this darker side of their perspectives on, you know, certain people. Um, but here we've seen it for so long now over these past four years as people have become more and more openly racist and misogynist and prejudiced against anybody um, and everybody that it's that that takes away a little bit of its bite. Um, but there's still so much here that is just hilarious and simply because how good Sasha Baron Cohen is at pulling these things off. And then also Maria um, Bakalova, who plays his daughter. Uh, Tutar, like they're incredible together. I don't know how they do this stuff without cracking each other up and like just how they're so quick on their feet to like make things go their way and like and also be genuinely funny. It's just it's incredible. Yeah, she's the MVP. She's I didn't mention yeah. her when I talk, but to see her match Baron Cohen scene for scene and be as bold and as committed as he is, it's wild. Yeah, especially considering she just graduated last year from, you know, like a, a drama school in Belgium or, or wherever she went to school. It was like or, uh, Bulgaria, I think. Um, I mean, just an incredible like debut, <laughs> like a star making sort of performance. Really um, amazing stuff from her. Ben, what did you think? Uh, yeah, I think Brad really the the past couple minutes of what Brad was saying is what what really rang true for me. Like the idea that um, a lot of this stuff, it doesn't quite feel as... Um, as revelatory maybe uh, or, or shocking as it did because a lot of this has been, you know, so out in the open over the past few years. Um, but still, I, I found a lot to, to laugh about in this movie. I, I think, um, you know, Seth Rogen sort of like overhyped it to me beforehand. Not, not directly to me on, on Twitter. He said, you know, something like uh, it has a few of the funniest scenes I've ever seen in a movie. And I was like, oh my God, like if Seth Rogen is saying this, like what am I in for? And I, I think, you know, all of us kind of, have been dancing around the or beating around the bush and basically just saying like, it's not quite as funny as the original movie. So, um, you know, I, 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 uh, don't necessarily agree with Seth Rogen on that front, but there still is so much funny stuff in this movie and it's, um, it's just not quite as shocking anymore. Um, but it still is like, I'm glad that I saw it. I'm glad that it exists. I'm glad that it went, you know, it, it, they didn't have to kick it into next year, you know, for people to see it theatrically and they were able to find a way to get this stuff out there. I don't think it's really going to change anybody's mind in terms of like the, the activism filmmaking. Um, You know, I I think people will always find a way to justify whatever their beliefs are. But uh, Jason Wolliner, who directed this, I thought did a really good job of sort of keeping uh an interesting like um stylistic continuity between the borat stuff that we've known and you know borat as he now exists in 2020 so um yeah it's it's definitely worth watching also i wanted to mention someone on this podcast was it ben or chris was talking about how 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 it's gonna be weird in the future where there's these movies that were shot 
and like people aren't wearing masks or or whatever. Yeah, Chris, Chris, recently, Chris. yeah, and it's weird because this movie, I think, I think the whole movie was shot during the pandemic. At least it's a big storyline for a lot of the end sequence, right? So I, I would assume it is, and you know. We we only see like I think one person in the mo- the whole movie wear a mask. Like, how, how do you produce something like that? Like, especially with unions, and like it, we're hearing all these like rules of how like you know you have to go into a bubble, test every few days. Like everybody like, but like Borat. I mean, Sasha Baron Cohen is like living at one point living with some people where like they test it. Like I, I don't know. It's just like no one's wearing a mask. Did anybody else think this was weird? It's it sort of felt like to me that, and I don't know if anybody else got this vibe that like uh, the pandemic hit like in the middle of the production. That's sort of like it, yeah. it, it sort of arrives in the middle of the story, and so it feels like the stuff they shot before that was fine, and and then all of a sudden it it lands that way. And I feel like it happened so quickly that they were just they just sort of figured it out on the fly. They they you know continued filming well before you know any of those rules about pods and testing and all that kind of stuff uh, that you know the Hollywood guilds agreed upon I think this was all shot uh, you know in the earliest days of the pandemic and so I I think I'm not quite sure about that because the last scene and I'm not going to ruin who's in that last scene but that politician was wearing a mask as he entered the the location and uh, you know Republicans don't like to wear masks or yeah, didn't so at that, that point. Yeah, that actually uh, happened. Uh, so because that that made news beforehand that it was that they made it seem like uh, it didn't go like as they planned, well, which obviously is a lie. Um, but that was reported in July that that had happened and that um, a lot of people had thought that it was going to be part of like a new season of Who is America, uh, uh, Sasha Baron Cohen show. And then um, but like but a lot of this stuff did happen before the pandemic because like the CPAC thing with Mike Pence that that happened in February and that also made news before the pandemic hit, um, even though he's talking about it in there, it hadn't hit the United States in the, the full way yet. Um, but obviously, you know, he quarantines with uh, those, those two people. And so part, yeah, like, I, I think like Ben says, it hits in the middle and they had to do some stuff probably, uh, during quarantine, um, or early during the pandemic and figure out how to do it, you know, in the safest way possible. Yeah. Can we, can we fast um, forward to Baron Cohen's retirement? We write his tell all memoir about how he did all this because I would buy that book. Oh my gosh. Yes, <laughs> please. Seriously. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, I want to read that. I just wish they would like film a behind the scenes. I feel like that would be just as compelling as like, I, I want to know how even like, not only how does he orchestrate these things, but like, you know, when you know, something comes up, like the pandemic or whatever, how does he rewrite? How does he like take that? Like, like, yes, and do you know what I mean? You know, Peter, I'm surprised at that because, you know, you're, you're, you're big into magic. You're a magic guy and magicians don't reveal their how they do their tricks. I remember at Comic-Con, the one time I went, you did like this really cool card trick. And I was like, how did you do that? And you refused to tell me. So, <laughs> yeah, but, here's the, but here's the thing, Chris. Magicians become magicians because they want to know the secrets. Right. Yeah. No, I get it. But I'm saying like, you know, you have to look at it from his point of view. You know, his whole, his whole shtick, for lack of a better term, is not really letting us in on how he does all this stuff. So I'm, I'm not surprised it's, he doesn't like, you know, reveal his secrets. I'm not criticizing him for not revealing it. I'm just like saying, I wish, I wish I could watch. It's some content that I would really want to consume. 
Oh, I understand. I'm just saying you got to look at it from, you know, the, the magician point of view. <laughs> <laughs> Touche there, Chris. Touche. Okay. Uh, let's move on. Uh, I, what did I watch this week? I, or, or wait, did anybody else have anything else to say about the Borat sequel? I'm sorry if I cut anybody off there. I want to say, if you haven't watched already, the original Dali G show, the H- especially the HBO seasons, is terrific. And it's Borat and his other characters at their purest uh, before anybody knew who he was. And it gets away with some wild stuff. So if you want more, those are streaming on HBO Max. And goodness, I think they're great and they hold up. Okay. Okay. Uh, what I've been watching, I, I think I mentioned twice in the past that I'm watching the show called The The Vow on HBO. Is it HBO Max or is it HBO? I'm not even sure. I just watch it on HBO Max, but season one was on there. It's a docu series, uh, following the the rise and fall of the Nexium cult, and this is a cult that um, it kind of started as like a multi level marketing company, and it's based in Albany, and it was made for like personal and professional development seminars, uh, executive success programs, and they were able to kind of lure in some big people, some big names, like some royalty, some actors, actresses, uh, you know, big heirs to, you know, were funding this organization. And it turned out that this organization at the very top was, uh, they, it it was a a sex cult. Uh, they were sex trafficking. They were, um, there were branding people. There was, uh, slaves. There was, I don't know. It's it, it's it's crazy, and I I've said in the past that this HBO series uh, is a ten episode series. Uh, I think it's ten episodes. It's long. It, it it should be half the length of what it is. Uh, but the thing that is interesting about it is the guy that got kind of sucked into this was the documentary filmmaker that uh, I should have had his name up in front of me, but he's the guy that made um what the bleep do we know? Oh, Mark Vicente. And he got kind of sucked into this like 15 years ago and he was like filming stuff for them. And he was like, he recorded all his phone calls. So the the great thing about this documentary is that usually these kind of documentaries are talking head stuff after the fact. And this, like you get to see a ton of footage of while it's going on. And also while these uh, group of people that have kind of um, left this organization are trying to take it down and we're like following them while it's happening. Um, so the, the season finale uh, happened and uh, I will say it's, it, it's a, it lets, it leaves a little to be desired because the stuff is still going on right now. And um, it, you know, the, the, the organization fell, this is news. This is, I guess it's not a spoiler, but it, it's really interesting how HBO and the filmmakers leave this season off with like, this whole thing was run by this guy named Keith Ranieri. And this documentary, I think, uh, you know, it, it definitely makes him out to be a bad person, but it also like he's a mystery box of sorts. And it, it kind of, uh, I want to say, uh, I don't want to say glorifies, but like it makes you want to kind of like know more about him. And like, why was he doing like, you know, you have questions and like, um, it doesn't just like paint like it, it tries to give you a three dimensional look of of a person and not um, just paint him as evil villain, which he probably is. But the uh, the season one ends with 
the documentary filmmakers who have greenlit for a season two for HBO, basically having a conversation with Keith, the guy that ran, like founded and created this, this organization. And uh, it's basically teasing that the second season is going to give you some of him in it, like him telling his side of the story, which feels a little icky. I don't know. I'm still in, I'm still going to watch it. Uh, but after watching this, I was, um, I was hearing a lot about this other documentary that's going on called seduced inside the Nexium cults. And this is airing on stars. It's a four part series. Uh, if you do not want to go through the 10 episodes or whatever that, um, the vow is, I would highly recommend checking out if you have stars, uh, this series, uh, I have only watched the first episode, but I'll tell you it's, it's, it feels like fast forward. Like you're getting like lots of information, like really, really fast. It's streamlined. It's focused. The, the interesting thing is, I think it's interesting that we are in a time where different documentary filmmakers are covering the same thing from different angles. I know we talked about this on the past, on this podcast about the, uh, uh, Firefest or whatever, um, documentaries that were, were going on. And it was like really interesting to see, you know, that from different angle angles. And it's interesting to see this from different angles because the vow has, uh, the mother who is of royalty, uh, of royalty, who's like trying to get his, her daughter out of this cult that she like kind of got her into. Uh, and, this other documentary seduced the the main character of this is India. It's her daughter and it's her telling her story after the fact. So you're seeing kind of both sides of the, the story. Uh, this is um, I will say that this is while this is more focused and streamlined, this one is, is definitely also more talking heads and using animated illustrations and using some like uh, public footage from Nexium. that it's the footage isn't as compelling, but I think overall it's like, uh, more interesting stuff is happening. Like, you know, you might uh, enjoy this. One of the revelations here I didn't know from this first episode was uh, Jennifer Aniston, Gerard Butler, and Rosario Dawson uh, were some people that took uh, classes uh, from Nexium. So that that's kind of crazy. I don't know. This whole story is crazy. I, I'm going to continue watching this. I signed up for stars just to watch this four episode series. And uh, I've only seen the first episode, but I'm, I'm really, it's really compelling stuff. And I, I would recommend both of them. But uh, if you want like the, the cliff notes version, maybe, maybe start with seduced on stars. But yeah. Um, the only other thing I watched this week is I watched this documentary from a couple of years ago. It's called showbiz kids. This is also available on HBO, and this is from uh, director Alex Winter, who you know from Bill and Ted movies. Um, he this is a documentary about um, you know showbiz kids. Uh, it, the documentary starts saying twenty thousand kids audition each year, and ninety five percent of them don't book book one job. Um, this has interviews with Evan Rachel Wood, Jada Pinkett Smith, uh, Will Whedon. Uh, Henry Thomas, the kid that played uh, the the boy from ET, um, a bunch of people. Uh, it this is definitely a tell not show documentary. There's a lot of talking heads. Uh, you see some vintage photos and some video. Um, you know, you get to see Henry Thomas's audition for ET, where uh, Steven Spielberg says he's got the role, which we've seen on YouTube. Uh, it's great. Um, 
it does follow some like people trying to get into the business, like a kid from Orlando who travels to LA for pilot season, but that doesn't really like, it's not really as much of like a follow me narrative. It's, it's, this is more of like these former kid actors who are either actors now or not, uh, being interviewed, uh, about, uh, you know, their career and what has happened. Um, I, I guess the, the downside, I think this documentary is worth watching, but I will say that the downside of this documentary is this movie is exactly what you think it's going to be. The story it tells of it's pretty much, you know, what you expect. It's about the wonders of fame, the troubles of stage parents, the loss of childhood, growing out of their cute age, acting out, you know, it, 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 it touches all the things. I don't think there's any big revelations here and there's not like uh, any, I don't know, but it's on HBO uh, and that is called Showbiz Kids. Brad, what have you been watching? Uh, just one other thing. Um, since last time we recorded a water cooler, I finally got around to watching Mulan, uh, the remake, the live action remake from Disney, and uh, it's pretty good actually. I'm I'm actually somebody who um, around the time Mulan came out and uh, Hercules and Emperor's New Groove, I was starting to grow up a little bit and I wasn't necessarily super invested in uh, animated Disney movies anymore. Um, and this was also after like Toy Story had come out. And so like interest was shifting, you know, to computer animation. And, um, and so I, I just felt like I started feeling like not as much of like a kid anymore. And so I don't have the love for uh, Mulan uh, and those other Disney movies that some people uh, do. So I, my reverence for that movie didn't really have an impact on, you know, how I felt about this uh, live action remake, which um, I don't think it's amazing by any means. And um, I actually think that, uh, you know, a lot of people were complaining about how it sucks that Mushu wasn't in this and that it's not a musical. But I actually think that that works in the film's favor. Um, it, it makes the the stakes feel feel higher. I, I think it allows it to be a little bit more um, stylish, but in a different way. Uh, I like the action sequences in this movie. Um, you know, the influence of you know movies like Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, and uh, you know other uh, martial arts movies of of that ilk. And it's just yeah, I, I found myself you know enjoying it, and I. Um, maybe it's just because it was, you know, after the, the hype and the criticism had, you know, blown over and it wasn't really a big deal anymore. Um, but it was, uh, I had a good time and I, uh, that, that's all I have to say about that. HT, you were, you were like kind of lukewarm on this one, right? Yeah, I was a little lukewarm. I felt like, I think my description was, it felt like it was something that was assembled by committee and, um, I still feel that way. That's fair. I do love the um, the orchestral um, uh, version of the what's the name of the song? Reflection. Yes. Yeah. Like that. Uh, that I, I think that's such a, like an uplifting like theme uh, during some of the more epic parts of the movie. Okay, Ben, what have you been watching? Uh, I finished Ted Lasso, which I think I talked about on last week's episode, and um, it finishes really strong. I love the show, and I think all of you guys should watch it. I think you would find a lot to enjoy there. It's very, very funny, very heartwarming, uh, really like sort of gut-punchingly sad at, at certain moments, but it's, um, man, it's such a great showcase for Jason Sudeikis, so I, I don't really need to say anything more about it, but uh, everyone should watch Ted Lasso. It's very, very good. So that's on Apple TV+. And then also I watched Monster House for the first time. Um, this is a 2006 computer-generated movie that was directed by Gil Keenan. And I had never seen this before. I remember it sort of, you know, coming and going, not really being like a huge deal when it came out, but but being in that sort of uh, 
animated period where it, it wasn't a, a Disney movie. It wasn't, um, you know, there, there are a lot of movies that like that. that sort of like fall through the cracks if they're not like, if they don't have the huge uh, studio support of like a massive, massive, massive marketing campaign behind it. And this movie, I feel like is, um, you know, not as talked about, not as, uh, I don't know if I'd go as, as far as to call it like a, you know, a forgotten gem or anything like that, but it's sort of, it's definitely not in the conversation in the way that a lot of the, like the Disney movies from this period are. But um, the script was written by Dan Harmon, who uh, is one of, you know, the creator of Community and Rob Schraub, who uh, along with Dan Harmon wrote uh, Heat Vision Jack and uh, Pamela Petler. So it's got like a a great um, sort of stable of of creative people behind it. Uh, Robert Zemeckis' company and uh, Steven Spielberg's Amblin, uh, ended up producing this thing. Um, so it has all, and the, the voice cast is incredible. I'm not actually going to say anything about who is in this movie because I didn't, there's so much about this film that I didn't know that uh, discovering the voices as they appeared was like half of the fun for me. So I'll just say it has a very good cast of, of like recognizable people. And it was fun to just be like, oh, wow, it's this person. So, um, you know, very, I'm a basic person. And that was a, <laughs> a very <laughs> enjoyable thing for me to experience. Um, so yeah, Monster House, it's it's pretty good. It's the story of these uh these kids who live across the street or this one kid and his friends who uh, live across the street from a, uh, an elderly neighbor who lives in this really broken down, scary looking house. And uh, what happens when um, that neighbor, uh, when, when basically like the house comes to life and, and starts to, uh, to attack them on the night before, um, before Halloween, or actually I think it's, it's Halloween night, but it's just before they go trick or treating. So, uh, anyway, it's called Monster House. I watched it for free on Peacock with a couple ads in there, but um, yeah, it's it's uh, you know the the animation. It looks very 2006. It's it's not exactly the crisp kind of animation that you would come to expect from today. But there were some cool little flourishes in there. The camera sort of moves around. It sort of felt like at certain moments that Gil Keenan was trying to show off how far the technology had been pushed to that moment, which is a very Robert Zemeckis thing. Um, so you could sort of feel his uh, invisible hand in the movie uh, in that way. But um, yeah, I sort of, I had fun with it. It's not like a, a life-changing <laughs> movie, but if you're looking for a little little spooky movie, uh, a little family-friendly spook fest, uh, check out Monster House on Peacock. Ben, have you ever heard Dan Harmon's Monster House story? Uh, no, I haven't. Uh, Dan Harmon co-wrote the original screenplay and a friend of his saw it and her daughter was so terrified by it that she wrote him a letter asking, hey, could you explain to my daughter it's a movie and that you wrote it and that she shouldn't be scared? And he wrote back, and the letter got published years later on her <laughs> site, on her, I think on her Tumblr. And he uses this letter to a seven-year-old kid to completely trash the movie, explain how they change his script, and uh, <laughs> lambast every person in the production. He wow. said at one point, uh, Monster House director Gil Keenan is a hack, and Steven Spielberg is a moron. <laughs> Oh my god! Wow. And he says, "I hope one day I can finish writing a movie that they don't change so much. And if you see it, I hope it makes you happy. Until then, I heard that Wally is very good. You should go see that." <laughs> wow, that's oh, very man. Dan Harmon of him. Very, yeah. I recommend googling uh, Dan Harmon, Monster House, Spielberg, some combination of those words, and finding it. It's, <laughs> it's very, very dumb and horrible and funny. <laughs> I remember really enjoying this film and I, I know it's like it has kind of like a little bit of a cult following kind of like Paranorman because, you know, both these movies have like a 80s nostalgia, but also like, or, you know, kid horror movies that are kind of a little bit scary. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I'm not sure if this is still true, but I remember as of 2018, this was the only motion capture animated film that was not entirely was not to feature a entirely original story and not be based off existing source material. Yeah, I was just looking at that um, on the Wikipedia page. It said that some of the animation was done using like uh, live action motion capture stuff, uh, yeah. I guess, for the for the kids. And I had no idea watching the movie. It doesn't really you can't really feel that in the same way that you can in something like the Polar Express, where it's like very obvious. Um, I think it, I think it explains the sort of filmic quality of the movie, too, because it is CG animated, but it feels a little different than the CG animated movies of the time because it feels very like of shot like a, a live action movie in a way yeah yeah ht what have you been watching ah oh i watched les diaboliques so uh put your hat on for my uh snobby french <laughs> pronunciation because it's about to happen <laughs> it already uh, happened yeah so les diaboliques is a 1955 horror film by henri-georges clouseau uh, which uh, was the supposed inspiration for Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho after the um, screenplay rights uh, for uh, were prevent were blocked from Hitchcock, um, and so he ended up. Uh, I think uh, I th- he ended up adapting Psycho instead. Um, and this is a film that uh, feels very much like in the vein of Psycho. There is. Um, a lot of suspense and dread to this film, and it follows a um, a wife of a headmaster of a boarding school. Um, the headmaster is really cruel and abusive, and flaunts the mistress um, who he's taken on at this boarding school, who's a teacher as well, um, in front of his meek wife. And uh, the wife and the mistress end up. Um, forming a sort of unlikely friendship because of the abuse that this headmaster doles out to both his wife and his mistress, and they plot to murder him. And um, this is its an excellent film. It's, um, it has this third act twist, which really like knocked me back on my heels. I did not expect it at all. And it's filmed in a way that the score is completely absent. So the the entire big climactic scene is done is like the only sound is in the heavy breathing of the heroine as she walks down this darkened hall and um, the creaks of the knobs that are turning uh, apparently without um, a hand behind it. So it's, it's really excellent. And um, I can definitely see where the, the ties to psycho come in, especially in that third act twist, which I won't, um reveal but it's one of like the one of the best uh sort of twists that i've seen in a suspense film it's excellent and uh this is uh streaming on i watched it on amazon prime it said it's supposed to be on hbo max but i couldn't find it on hbo max but it is on amazon prime um but has anyone else seen Di- Le diabolique or it's also known as just diabolique I have, and I also saw the remake, which is awful, which you should watch it now that you've seen the original. Oh, no. But why would you recommend me that? Because I, <laughs> I'm i an agent of chaos. <laughs> Chris suffered, so you're going to have to suffer. Yes. All right. Yeah, this is, this is a really terrific movie. I haven't seen it since film school, but it's lingered with me. Okay. Sorry, my, my microphone was just falling over. All right. <laughs> Uh, the next film that I watched um, was actually a movie that I've seen before, but a long, long time ago. And I won't talk about it too much because Chris uh, 
gave this really great breakdown of Bruce Lee movies a little while ago. Um, but I watched Enter the Dragon, um, which was on HBO Max. And I had only seen it once uh, when I was really young and terrified of violence. And so my Bruce Lee loving cousin, of course, decided to force me to watch it. And I was just closing my eyes the entire time. So this time I watched it with my eyes wide open and it's great. Um, I have... Um, nothing bad to say about this movie it's exactly the kind of bruce lee uh exploitations meets exploitation uh martial arts film uh, that's that you would expect and bruce lee is so charismatic and full of swagger and charm and he's just he's so he's so magnetic in this movie and um that mirror sequence still rips so that's uh, Enter the Dragon and uh, streaming on HBO Max. And um, other things I've been watching, uh, it's, you know, I'm going through a time of upheaval right now. And during times of upheaval, I like to turn to some friends. <laughs> They're always there for me. Uh, I've been rewatching Friends a lot um, on HBO Max also. Just been watching a lot of HBO Max things. Uh, but it also has some sentimental value. My uh, former roommate and I had actually bonded over friends when we met in college. And I have been just playing it on in the background to fill the silence that fills now my uh, empty apartment. <laughs> and I, I still really enjoy it. I still think, I know it's very basic and I know there have been so many essays talking about how friends is bad actually, which I disagree with. But um, I think the the beats still land, the comedy still is is good and it still holds up and the chemistry between the cast is so excellent and i think that um jennifer aniston's comic timing is really underrated she uh really gains a foothold in especially the even second and third and latter seasons she has such good comic timing um and it's it's so fun to see even though i know all these lines and can recite a lot of them backwards and forwards is it still makes me laugh and uh some of the jokes haven't aged well but i do think that friends overall ages well and is more um relevant or connectable or i can't think of the word but you know um than uh, other sitcoms that came after it like how met your mother for instance which is sort of a, a in the same vein as Friends, but I was watching clips of it recently, and a lot of the jokes, and especially the plot lines revolving around Barney, um, don't age well at all, especially in the in the wake of the Me Too movement. But I think that um, Joey in Friends, he, despite him being that playboy character, actually works more in this in the context of being that that sort of um, character because he has more of a geniality to him so it's yeah I, I still really enjoy friends david schwimmer is really really funny even though ross is a deplorable character but he's he's, he's definitely one of the, the standout actors in uh in friends and um we've talked about friends a lot so i won't go any much longer but i've just been re-watching re it a lot and appreciating appreciating it more and more ht we, we will talk about for, for about 30 seconds more because i have one question for you uh-huh were they on a break? Of course they were. Oh, no, wait, sorry. I said, I, what I mean is, they <laughs> <laughs> they were not on a break. But, I mean, okay. I hate this question. <laughs> because technically they were on a break, but Ross was still super shitty in sleeping with another woman the same night. 
my, and, my wife um, and I have this conversation <laughs> slash fight every time, every time we watch his friends, which is about once every six months. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's um, it's really funny watching Friends with my my former roommate because we both hate on Ross a lot, and when her boyfriend hears us doing it because he hasn't watched Friends, he's like, "You guys just hate on Ross so much," and we're like, "Yeah, it's." He deserves it though. He's terrible. Ross is a trash person. He's a grade A trash person. Played very well, but he's a trash person. Yes, exactly. Um, but yeah, I've, I wrote about friends in my recent quarantine stream. And another thing I wrote about in my quarantine stream was Over the Garden Wall, which is a perfect spooky fall time fable. Uh, I really enjoy watching this wonderful little mini series um, that I discovered. I mean, many people have been talking about it, but I finally watched it couple years ago and it just hit every every uh button for me uh it's that kind of ghibli-esque whimsy meets spooky fall time melancholy that uh really hit the sweet spot especially during this time and if you guys haven't watched it yet i think all of you would really enjoy it that's over the garden wall and it's streaming both on hbo max and on hulu okay uh, I guess we haven't gotten to Chris yet. Chris, what have you been watching? Uh, I watched this a while ago, but I'm just adding it here because otherwise I would have nothing else to talk about. But I watched Wolf, which is the sort of forgotten werewolf movie starring Jack Nicholson and Michelle Pfeiffer, directed by Mike Nichols, who obviously directed a lot of things. He directed The Graduate and a bunch of other stuff. So uh, it's just weird to think that Mike Nichols made a werewolf movie and no one talks about it anymore. <laughs> and it's... it's 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 probably like the most laid back werewolf movie ever made. Um, if you haven't seen this movie, here's here's the gist of it. Jack Nicholson is a uh, he works at a publishing house. He's an editor. He's he's aging. He, you know he's he's becoming an old man. He's just like tired and run down all the time. And while driving one night, uh, he hits a wolf with his car, and he gets out to check the wolf, and the wolf springs up and bites him on the hand. And uh, then he turns into a werewolf and he he's he's like the the most laid back werewolf you'll you'll ever see. Like there's there's like a scene in this movie where where Jack Nicholson takes like a 12 hour nap. And that's like this. (laughs) It's like supposed to be like this big turning point where his wife is like, you have to get up for work. And he's like, I need a few more hours. And then like it cuts to his wife coming home and she's like, wow, you've been sleeping all day. And like, it's just amazing to me. Like that's a scene in a werewolf movie. Cause I can't imagine like someone making well, a werewolf movie today and being like, we need a scene where the werewolf takes a long nap. Like we need to throw that in our werewolf movie, but that's in, in, in wolf. And it's really just about Jack Nicholson suddenly being very like horny for Michelle Pfeiffer. Now that he got bit by a wolf. And even though she's clearly much younger than him, they, they start having an affair uh, David Schwimmer is in this, oddly enough. He plays like a cop who tries to arrest Jack Nicholson when Jack Nicholson breaks into the zoo because that's what werewolves do. They break into zoos. And uh, Jack Nicholson gets away because human cop David Schwimmer is no match for werewolf Jack Nicholson. Uh, also, James Spader is in this and he plays a very wormy, like asshole kind of guy who's who's trying to steal Jack Nicholson's job. And then he becomes a wolf, a werewolf. And the two have like a big werewolf fight at the end. And it's like in slow motion. And you can really tell it's like a studio note scene. Like the studio was like, there's no action in your goddamn werewolf movie, Mike Nichols. You need to throw something in there. So 
while the whole movie there's like no action at all at the very end there's this like big throwdown wwe smackdown scene where werewolf jack nicholson and werewolf james spader are throwing each other around in like a horse stable and it's so poorly done because, because mike nichols great a director as he was was not an action director and it really shows and uh, I know I'm making it sound like this is a terrible movie, but I genuinely enjoy <laughs> just how strange and like unconventional this movie is. And it, it came out around the time that like Bram Stoker's Dracula came out and Mary Shelley's Frankenstein came out. So it sort of like gets lumped into those movies, even though it's not like them at all. And it's just, it's just fascinating to me that at at some point, you know, Mike Nichols, this big director, was able to get Jack Nicholson, this big actor, to make this very <laughs> low-key werewolf movie, and no one talks about it anymore. So, Wolf, I don't think it's streaming anywhere. I actually bought a used DVD, because it's not on Blu-ray. Wow. I, I bought it off Amazon. So, there you have it, Wolf. So that, that, that's, that's, my, that's my pick for the week. Thank you. <laughs> I like to imagine Mike Nichols like read that like wolf sleep for like long periods of time. And he was like, we need a scene in there where he's sleeping for 12 hours. I mean, yeah, it might be that. Like we got to have, we got to have this in here. The the long, the long wolf nap where Jack Nicholson sleeps for a long time. Uh, Chris, at the very end, during that confrontation you were talking about, can you tell if it's Nicholson and Spader in like wolf prosthetics fighting each other? Or is it like clearly stunt guys or like, what is the vibe of that moment? Uh, it depends on the angle. There are some, like there's an, there's a shot where, and you can tell it's done in like reverse, but there's a shot where Jack Nicholson like leaps over this, this horse stable door. And it's very obviously a stunt man, but for the, like, when it's close-ups, it really, you know, it's clearly them in makeup throwing each other around and, uh, in, but again, it's all shot in slow motion, so I'm sure they probably like filmed it in slow motion because I can't imagine <laughs> I can't imagine Jack Nicholson like like throwing himself around for real for for this movie. So that's probably yeah. why the whole scene was was sh- like shown in slow motion to hide how little action there was. It's great. I love Wolf. Thank you. <laughs> you know, this is written by Wesley Strick, uh, who is the person who wrote uh, Arachnophobia. He wrote Kate Fear. He wrote, uh, what else did he write here? Uh, Doom, the you know the video game a- adaptation. And, uh, oh, Nightmare on Elm Street, the 2010 remake. What a career, man. <laughs> so at one point he was working for Scorsese and, and Frank Marshall. And then his career, like, yeah. Anyways, okay. Uh, w- let's move on to what we've been eating. Uh, I, this week went to Dunkin' Donuts because they have, they came out with some Halloween donuts, including this ghost pepper donut. It is a, it's like one of their, uh, kind of, um, their normal glazed donuts, but it has a strawberry frosting with sprinkles. And I think the sprinkles have, I'm not, I'm not sure how they do it, but it has ghost pepper infused in it. Uh, I thought it was going to be a gimmick. I honestly thought I was going to go there and it was just going to be sweet and not like have any spice to it. Uh, we recorded an episode of Ordinary Adventures actually trying this out. I'll put the link in the show notes, but um, it's actually kind of spicy. I don't want to say it's like, like don't think ghost pepper. Like it's not like spicy, like you're going to freak out spicy, but it was like, it's a combination of like, it's a strawberry donut that like after you take a few bites, like 
you're like, oh yeah, there's some spice in the back of my throat. It, it, it almost like has like a atomic fireball in in the way that it's like sweet and spicy. Um, Brad, I, I know you're not like a big fan of spice, but would you try this? No, I, I'm scared of ghost peppers. And so even though you say that it's not quite ghost pepper spicy, like that's enough for me to, to stay away from it. <laughs> Well, they, if you don't want ghost peppers, they also have their like traditional Halloween stuff. Like they have a pumpkin donut, which was amazing, and then they have like one of their donuts that's like meant for like Instagram, where it's like a, a orange frosted donut that has like a black munchkin, uh, chocolate munchkin in the middle, and then like they do like some frosting to make it look like it's a it's a, a spider on top. So um, you could get those, Brad, but those aren't as exciting. I honestly, Peter, this is weird. Oh, I was going to say, yeah. I honestly don't really understand the like the spicy sweets trend especially when it comes to things like baked goods and candy i i'm just really like freaked out by like like there's been recently there's been like fire versions of like gummies and skittles and and all this stuff and i'm just like no like i don't i don't i don't want any of like that spice in my candy like like stay away uh peter i was just gonna say that um I'm almost never in this what you've been eating thing, but I actually tried this ghost pepper donut as well because my wife is a big fan of super spicy things and she loves ghost peppers and all that kind of like, you know, upper end of the the spice scale stuff. Yeah. And I happened to go through uh, Dunkin' Donuts drive through the other day and saw that they had this and thought that she would like it. And uh, we both tried a bite of it. And I, I was surprised at how not super spicy it was until the the uh sprinkles really hit the back of your throat and then it's sort of like oh yeah i can i definitely see it there but i really think brad it's not nearly as bad as like the ghost pepper descriptor would have it you know make it sound i I think if you can handle just like a tiny bit of spice you'll you'll be fine with this but uh if you're opposed to it on like an an idealistic level like a you know, I, I, on a principled stand <laughs> against uh, spicy mixing with sweet, then I totally Yeah, I'm fundamentally that. against it. <laughs> but yeah, I would agree. If you can handle an atomic fireball, then I think you can handle this. Like, it's not like uh, super spicy. But I was surprised. I, I honestly didn't think, I thought it was going to be more of a gimmick. And I guess it is a gimmick because it's not ghost pepper spicy. But I was surprised that uh, it, it's not immediate either. Like, I, I feel like I took one bite and I was like, oh, this isn't that spicy. And then all of a sudden, like, you know, like you said, it hits the back of your, your throat and you're like, mm-hmm. oh, yeah, there it is. Um, okay, uh, Brad, what have you been eating this week? Uh, so previously, I talked about how my girlfriend found a website that has some of her, like, favorite uh, snacks from Africa because she's from Zimbabwe. Um, and she recently ordered uh, a few more and she had me me try them. These are, these are some of her, like, favorite things. Um that are uh, can- candy, and then ones like this uh, sweet drink. So the, the first one I'll talk about is this thing called Ultramel, um, and it's basically like a custard flavored, um, milky sort of drink. Like it's um, kind of similar to like a. It, it tastes like vanilla pudding, but a little bit more of like a a liquid version, as if almost as if you got like a liquid uh, or a vanilla yoohoo or something like that. Um, and it's uh, it's very very good. Apparently, the best thing to do with it, she says, is to um, like put it on top of um like like baked goods and things like that like um so, so like you have a nice mix of the cool like creamy custard with uh, with baked goods and so sometime we're gonna have to try that because we um it's like a six pack of uh the drink boxes that she got but it's uh it's really really good and then uh she also got this uh candy called a fizzer 
which is um, it, it's not a fissure like a, a gross thing, but a fizzer like pop like fizz, and it's uh, it's cream soda flavored, and the um, the best way to describe it is it's kind of like uh, laffy taffy, but it has this like um, kind of almost like a pop rocks carbonation to it. It doesn't it doesn't like pop in your mouth, but just as you're you're eating it, it tastes like almost like a like a uh, because the flavor is cream soda, but also like the texture feels like you have soda in your mouth in taffy form. Um, it's a little bit more tart than I was expecting, um, but it but it is very good and it's it's uh, more chewy than laffy taffy, and I, I enjoyed that. And then uh, her absolute all time favorite candy bar is uh, Bar One, which is uh, a, a Nestle um, candy bar that's made uh, and sold in South Africa and India. And it's um, it's very similar to a Milky Way. It's honestly not much different, except it's um, the the ingredients inside of it are just better. Uh, first of all, the the chocolate of the bar itself is thicker um, and it's tastier because it's you know it's chocolate from outside of America. Because for some reason, the chocolate in America is not anywhere near as good as chocolate in Europe or other uh, countries. Um, and then inside, it has caramel and it has uh, malted nougat. Um, but the the nougat inside. It's not quite as uh, fluffy as the um, it is in a Milky Way. It's a little bit more dense, and so the bar is chewier, uh, and the flavor overall is is just better. So yeah, if you're uh, ever in an area where you can get yourself a bar one, give it a shot, and I think you'll like it more than a regular Milky Way. Okay, um, and let's move on to what we've been playing. Jacob, what have you been playing this week? I've been playing the game Hades. I've been playing the game Hades. Pretty much nonstop. I'm sitting here during this podcast wishing I was playing Hades. I'm at work <laughs> editing articles and I wish I'm playing Hades. I'm watching Borat 2 and I wish I'm playing Hades. I'm, Jacob? Yeah? As someone who doesn't play video games, what is Hades? Uh, Hades. It is a new game from Supergiant Games. They are a really strong developer. If indie developer, they tend to make a very they make smaller games, but they've all been hits. They've all had an audience. An audience, but uh, Hades is a big unexpected hit. It's, it's sold over a million copies for you know an indie game, and they were very transparent about their making of it. They launched it on early, on early access, meaning an unfinished version. You know, just you could pay a smaller price for it and play, and they would get feedback. They launched it two years ago, so it's been they've been refining it in public for two years before the official launch. There's even a documentary series on YouTube that chronicles the entire making of it, including how they finished during the pandemic. It's fascinating, and and if, and so you, if you ever want to know what it's like to watch a masterpiece get made. <laughs> It's all out there uh, in public eye because this is one of the best games I've played in a long time. The basic gist of it is that it's, it's a game called a, it's with the concept of a genre of a game called a roguelike, which is a, a run based game, meaning you essentially you, you try to beat it, and if you fail, you're sent back to the beginning, and you have to keep trying over and over again. It's typically a very punishing type of game, and people who are video game masochists <laughs> tend to enjoy them. And I've enjoyed my fair share, but Hades manages to be a difficult, challenging game while also being so charming, fun, and forgiving in the right ways that it never you never feel like you're failing even when you repeatedly lose and have to start over again. The gist of the story is that set in the, uh, the mythology of ancient Greece, you are uh, Zagreus, the son of Hades, the god of the underworld, and you are trying to leave your home. You're trying to leave the underworld, trying to leave Hades and your father, and uh, and get back to the mortal world for reasons that are explained in the story. And so each time you make an escape, an escape attempt from hell, essentially, you have to fight your way past monsters until you die, and you get sent back, and you get a little stronger, you go back in, you, you learn more, you get a little bit further, you get sent back, you know, each time you die in the underworld, you're sent back to the underworld. So it's really, it, the writing is really sharp and funny, because 
you're, you're this is just kind of like you know your, your dad hates you because you're because you don't want to run the family business your the rest of the, the servants in the house of hades all have different personalities and advice for you and the <laughs> art style is all terrific all the character designs are incredible looking uh they, they've all been they, they essentially established like an instant meme ability like people love the hades characters i i'm reminded of how the first avengers film people started making such earnest memes about the Avengers characters once they're all together because it, people fell in love with that, that crew so instantly that I, I there's, a, there's a similar energy to characters in Hades and how they all, even like the villains are people who you kind of love and like, and, you can, and I can really imagine this world becoming a comic book or a TV show or an animated series. It's even though the focus on the gameplay is action, you know, action, action, action. There's, so much story i haven't seen dialogue repeated once every time i die and come back you know and restart over people have new things to say the game is a memory so like you can catch something new a character will comment on it and it's so charming and so fun and the action is is difficult it's challenging but i feel like it it inches you into it in just the right way so that you become good as the game gets more difficult and i think it's a remarkably good video game <laughs> and one uh one that is also incredibly horny. Every, 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 every character in this, in this game is super sexy, male and female and androgynous. They're, they're all, everybody wants to fuck. And it's, it, it feels very true <laughs> to ancient Greece in that way. Um, I'm, a, I'm a mythology nut. And I love how it's reimagined uh, ancient Greece, Greek mythology in all of its, you know, sexy, funny, weird, deeply horny glory. Uh, Hades is $25 on Nintendo Switch and on the PC. I think it's also maybe coming to the consoles. I'm not sure yet. Uh, but it's a masterpiece. It's it is a straight up great game, an example of of video games doing what no other medium can do. Uh, I've, there's no way a movie or a TV show could quite feel the way that Hades does, and why it's so addicting. I love it. That's it. I I actually played a video game this w- last week. I I forgot to mention this, but uh, it was my friend Jeff's birthday, and we played some games over Skype. And I downloaded this game called Among Us. Have, has anybody here played this game? I've seen many videos of people playing it. <laughs> I have not played yeah, it. Yeah, I've heard about it. It's, it sounds yeah, really fun. Apparently, it's a big game. It's a, uh, We played it on the iPhone, so I'm not sure if it's available elsewhere. But uh, it, it's basically a game of teamwork and betrayal. Uh, players are either crewmates or an imposter. And when we were playing it, there was one imposter in the crew. So you're like... These guys in these like little cute spacesuits. You've probably seen this online. I, I think it's been going quite viral and stuff. Um, and you are on the spaceship. Things are going wrong. You have to like do these tasks. You have to run around and like try to um, fix things. And the little each task is like a little mini game. Some of them are fun. Some of them are really annoying. Uh, but all the while, there is an imposter in the mix that's in your group of friends that is that's there on the thing and uh once someone gets killed and is discovered to be dead so the imposter can kill people and he can also sabotage like the the things that you're trying to fix um so once someone is discovered dead then you all meet and for like i think you you can say how long the time is uh you can discuss you know who you think it is and why and like it, it's very like it, it hits that kind of like uh same dot that like you know werewolf or uh resistance or any of those kind of uh trader board games do um but it's also fun because it's like a little fun like little 
video game and it, it it goes by really quickly you can i think we like played like 10 games in a row and it was like you know under an hour or something so uh but i i think that's like one of the most downloaded games on the app store right now and it's i think it's free to play but uh yeah so i would highly recommend it if you have friends to play that with uh check it out it's called among us but uh, that does it for today's Slash Film Daily. You can find more of all of our work at SlashFilm.com. You can find this podcast on Apple, on Google, on Overcast, on Spotify, all the popular podcast apps. Uh, please feel free to send your feedback, questions, comments, concerns to us at Peter at SlashFilm.com. And please leave your name in general geographic location in case we mention the email in the air. Please rate and read this podcast on iTunes. Tell your friends. Spread the word. And we will see you on Monday. Good, good, uh, good episode, guys. I, I'll talk to you guys online. That was that was great. Wow, I I think Jacob fell asleep or something. Oh, I wasn't gonna do anything. Now you mentioned it, Ben. Oh, no. Open up the <laughs> book of insult, offense, and affrontery. Sharp retorts, reposts, caustic quips, implied put downs by Lewis A. C. F. Opening up the page. Jacob, I already had stop on the recording. No, you didn't. I'm seeing the wave bar moving. Uh, page uh, 231, bamboozlers. Are already be bamboozled? Uh, Peter, in his present job as treasurer, it's been found that he banked five times his salary in two years. The company is investigating to see what took him so long. <laughs> That's so long. I, I don't even quite understand this one. Ben Pearson, when you lend him money, he's telling the truth when he says, I'll be everlastingly indebted to you. <laughs> That's pretty good. Brad, he never puts off till tomorrow what can be put over. This is a complex <laughs> one with my tongue a twisting. Uh, Brad, he never puts off till tomorrow where you can put out over today. It's true. Uh, Chris Evangelista, he doesn't take long to notice that his character is like a decayed walnut. It's not what it's cracked up to be. Oh my goodness. I am a decayed walnut. Thank you. <laughs> and HD, she's so two-faced, she stands up in both the top and bottom halves of the seventh inning of a ball game. What? HD, she's, she's so two-faced, she stands up in both the top and bottom halves of the seventh inning of a ball game. Yeah. <laughs>